everyone. Got your walking shoes on? Let's power walk the Bible. This is episode nine, and we are leaving the wisdom literature behind and moving into the writings of the Old Testament prophets, 16 of my favorite gentlemen. In this episode, we're going to meet Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, if you want to do some reading before our next episode, begin with a little book of Lamentations and then read the writings of Ezekiel and Daniel. Okay, let's pray together as we get started. Almighty God, make me an instrument of your salvation and sanctification for these precious people that you've entrusted to my care through this podcast, that by my life and teaching, I may set forth your true and living word. All these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As always, we will talk about all of the scriptures that we're covering today, but we're also going to focus a bit on a particular passage. And today, that passage is Isaiah 45 verses 18 through 24a, and I'm going to read from the New International Version. For this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I've not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations, Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. Okay, let's get started. Today we begin our four-week study of the Old Testament prophets, four episodes on this very important group of people. We talked a bit about how to read the prophetical writings in our last episode, 
But to get us started today, I want to talk a bit more about what prophets do. Prophets, in biblical terms, not only predict for the future, but also convict in the present. They call us to account for our unfaithfulness and turning from God so that we can repent and return to God. Do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Yes. And thinking about the world we live in, would you agree that this conviction is needed as much now as it was in 800 to 400 BC, the time of the biblical prophets? Hmm. So if you have a pastor who preaches not only the feel-good parts of the Bible, because we love to be uplifted, we love to be encouraged, we love to leave each Sunday with renewed hope, but a pastor who also makes you a bit uncomfortable sometimes when you think about your own life, if you have a pastor who does both of those things, consider yourself blessed. Your pastor is just following in the footsteps of the biblical prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. We also need to note as we begin our study of the prophets that we are going back in time. The prophets wrote during the latter centuries of the history we read earlier, specifically during the time of the divided kingdom, leading up to the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon. The prophets are speaking for God, telling the people to repent or judgment will come. And of course, we know that it did come. We've already studied some prophets who do not have books named after them, such as Nathan and Elijah and Elisha. Today, we begin to study the writing prophets, and they are divided into major prophets and minor prophets. Now, this naming convention is deceptive, I think, as God's message delivered by the minor prophets is just as significant as the message delivered through the major prophets. The difference is typically in the length of their writings. Another difference is that all four of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, focused their prophecy on the southern kingdom of Judah. The minor prophets prophesied in both the northern and the southern kingdoms, as well as to the neighboring nations. So the writings of the prophets, both major and minor, are not ordered by importance in the Bible, but loosely chronological within each of those categories. For example, the first major prophet you find in the Bible, and, and this we're talking about, of course, mostly Protestant Bibles. Some Catholic Bibles are rearranged, they're, they're arranged differently. Uh, and the Hebrew scriptures are arranged differently. But we're talking about primarily a Protestant Bible. The first major prophet that you find in the Bible is Isaiah. And he lived and prophesied at the beginning of the prophetic period before either of the divided kingdoms had fallen. Then skip over to the last of the major prophets, Daniel. Well, he lived and prophesied after the fall of Jerusalem during the exile in Babylon. So in other words, after both of the kingdoms had fallen. 
just before King Cyrus let the remnant return to rebuild the temple and the city wall. So Isaiah has 66 chapters, and it is easily the longest prophetic book in the Bible. Uh, It's often divided into three sections based on the style and the setting of the writing. The book really appears to have been written over several generations, by Isaiah certainly, but as well as some of his disciples. So our first chunk of Isaiah, the first section, is Isaiah 1 through 39. Now Isaiah lived and prophesied during the time when the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. He began before that happened, but he was prophesying during that time when both kings like good kings like Hezekiah and Uzziah, as well as bad kings like Ahaz, were on the throne of the southern kingdom. So he prophesied for a long time through several kings. Isaiah was married. He had at least two sons, and he seems to have had a high social standing. This fact gave him ready access to the kings and his court, much to the irritation of some of those kings. In the opening chapters, Isaiah warns the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, of the wrath of God toward their sinful and rebellious behavior. He foretells God's judgment through vivid imagery of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He also emphasizes that when God's kingdom is restored, all will come to God's mountain to learn of him. And he speaks of this future time of peace in Isaiah 2, 4. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In chapter 6, we read of Isaiah's calling to prophecy, including his vision of God. Now, this is just the first vision of God we'll read about among the prophets, but it's one that has inspired many people over the centuries to serve God. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, and then verse 8, we read these words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Note also that this is a very similar image of God to what John records in Revelation. In chapter 7, God speaks through Isaiah to King Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, you may remember, was Hezekiah's father. Now, Hezekiah was a great king, but Ahaz was an evil king. 
And so Isaiah tells him to ask for a sign that God's word is true. Ahaz refuses to do even this, but Isaiah gives him a sign anyway using these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Here we find perhaps the first prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah, in Isaiah. In chapters 8, 35, we find more prophecies about the Messiah. Some of these may be familiar to you, even if you've never read Isaiah. They were used by Handel in the libretto of the oratorio, Messiah, most often heard performed during Advent and Christmas. For example, Isaiah 9, 6 reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I bet you were saying that along with me, weren't you? Through these chapters, Isaiah introduces what I call the prophetic pattern of conviction, call to repentance, consequences, and comfort a pattern we will see throughout the biblical prophet's writings. First, the prophet convicts the people of their sins and unfaithfulness to God. Often these words are directed at the religious leaders of the day. For example, see Isaiah 28, as God holds them accountable for failing to shepherd their flocks. Then the people are called to repent, confess their sins, and change their ways which they do not do. As a result, the prophet pronounces consequences in the form of God's judgment on them, using conquering nations as his instrument of destruction. And finally, after the judgment, the prophet offers comfort through God's forgiveness and reconciliation. Four C's, conviction, call to repentance, consequences, and comfort. Now, when we get into the second chunk of Isaiah, often called Deutero-Isaiah, now remember Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, I told you, means second law. This is second Isaiah. The timeline jumps ahead to the Babylonian exile after the fall of Jerusalem. Now, here the prophecies focus on the restoration of the remnant of Israel and the hope beyond that to the coming Messiah. So chapter 40 begins immediately with words to basically counterbalance the warnings of judgment and destruction in the first 39 chapters. In Isaiah 40, 1 and 3 and 5, we read these words of reassurance and hope, comfort, also found in Handel's Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. This is a prophecy about John the Baptist who precedes Jesus in the Gospels. We'll talk more about him some more in a few episodes. Later in this same chapter, the prophet gives encouragement to those in exile with these words. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen and hallelujah. And here is where we find our focus scripture for today where God reminds the people through Isaiah that he is the only God who saves. One of the themes of our power walk through the Bible is salvation. Now that's not just something God does. It's who he is. The fact that God can save, has saved, and will save is the defining characteristic of the God we worship. The prophets lived in a world of idolatry. Until Yahweh became the God of the Israelites, that's all there really was. Everyone worshiped idols, gods like Baal and Molech. They built statues of them, offered sacrifices to them, including, and this is hard to hear, throwing their own children into the altar fire, killing their children. They prayed to them for rain, for bountiful crops, and for power over their enemies. And they hoped that these false gods, these idols, might smile on them and give them happy lives. It sounds foolish to us, doesn't it? A statue an object making our lives complete. And yet, it's happening all around us in our world. Perhaps at some point in our lives, we too have placed our hope in false gods, idols. But no idol during the time of the prophets or later among the Greeks and Romans or today is like our God who saves. You may remember from your mythology studies in school that the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods took great delight in hiding themselves from mortals and making the lives of human beings fraught with pain and suffering. Exactly the opposite of the way God describes himself in the passage we read. There God says, I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I've not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. In other words, I'm not like any other God. I make myself known to you. I created you and I want you to know me. And what does God say about idol worshipers, both then and now? Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Just as we said, foolish. How could someone be so ignorant as to worship an idol? And yet, idolatry is a mammoth problem among human beings today, just as it was then. 
In our ignorance, we put our hope, our confidence, and our very lives in the hands of gods that cannot save. Now, it's easy to recognize idols such as maybe greed and materialism, celebrity, addictions of all kinds. We look at those things and think, yes, those things are not of God. These are false gods, idols. But here's the thing about idols. These gods who cannot save, they are like what in science fiction are called shape changers. They can appear as anything. They can even appear as things that seem to be perfectly good and healthy things, God-given blessings, as long as they do not become our gods, our objects of worship. These might be things like intelligence, morality, service to others, success, ambition, wealth. When we depend on these things, our intelligence, our goodness, our philanthropic efforts, our achievements, to give us hope and joy, to assure us of happiness and long life, to cover up our guilt and shame, to give us worth and purpose, we are worshiping them as idols. Our God who saves is the only one who gives us worth, who can take away our guilt, our sin, and give us true joy, peace, hope, and assurance of eternal life. That's what God wants us to understand here in Isaiah. He is the only God who saves, and he is sending a Messiah to provide that salvation. See, idolatry is present throughout the Bible, and it's still with us today, but it will not always be so. Our scripture for today concludes with these words, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. And here it is. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. So what might we in the 21st century understand from Isaiah? Our God who saves will exact his judgment on his unfaithful, idol-worshipping people in our time, just as he did in the times of the Old Testament biblical prophets. And ultimately, the entirety of creation will see that he is the only God who saves. Now, before we leave Isaiah, we need to note Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Here, Isaiah speaks for the coming Messiah. The Lord's God, Lord God's Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for captives and liberation for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Keep this passage in mind when we get to Luke's gospel, when we will encounter it again. And now we move into Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah presents an interesting contrast to Isaiah and also gives us an inside look at the life of a prophet. Now, unlike Isaiah and most of the other prophets, we learn a great deal about Jeremiah's life through his writings. The book of Jeremiah, while undoubtedly prophecy, also contains a lot of action, making it sometimes read more like one of the history books. Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet or the complaining prophet. He is frequently, putting it mildly, unhappy in his prophetic role, and he complains to God. And you can kind of see his point. I mean, he definitely has a thankless job by the world standards. How many people want to hang around with someone who's always pointing out their faults? And yet, we still get married. That was a joke. That was a joke. Jeremiah prophesies after the fall of the northern kingdom and during the final years of the southern kingdom. So we've moved ahead in time from where Isaiah begins. He is in Jerusalem during the siege and ultimately the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in the first chapters of Jeremiah, we read about God's displeasure and amazement with Judah and Israel's changing gods, abandoning Yahweh for pagan gods such as Baal. This is the conviction part. Since Israel's judgment has already come at this point, Jeremiah emphasizes that Israel was faithless, the northern kingdom, they were faithless, but the southern kingdom, Judah, maybe even more so, because Judah saw what happened to Israel but continues in her faithless ways. Thus, speaking for God, Jeremiah says that Judah will suffer a similar fate. Now, as we continue to read forward in Jeremiah, we see that God expects Jeremiah to not only speak God's message, but to act it out. He has him buy a clay pot and shatter it in front of the people to show that God will destroy Jerusalem beyond repair. Jeremiah is arrested, beaten, and put in stocks and threatened with death. God requires Jeremiah to make a yoke to wear around his neck, symbolizing how Judah will serve King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Jeremiah is acting out his prophecy. In chapter 29, God directs Jeremiah to write a letter to those who are already in exile in Babylon. Now, this is just a reminder on the history. You may remember us talking about that there were multiple deportations of people before Jerusalem fell. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the Babylonian armies, they started moving in from the east and taking people back to Babylon as they conquered the areas. Jerusalem was the last to fall. So there are already people in exile in Babylon while Jeremiah is witnessing the fall of Jerusalem and acting these prophecies out and writing about them. God encourages the exiles in this letter that Jeremiah writes to them. He encourages the exiles with these words from Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, 
I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to captivity from captivity. We know from the end of Second Chronicles and Ezra that indeed the exiles remained in Babylon for 70 years. Now in Jeremiah 31, we find a key scripture where God introduces the new covenant, one that will change and complete and replace the old covenant from Mount Sinai. The old covenant, you may remember, was based on an elaborate priest hierarchy and repeated sin and guilt offerings. The only way to get to God was through the high priest. The new covenant will make the knowledge of God available to everyone and provide forgiveness of sins once and for all time through Jesus. As we read read together earlier, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. In other words, I will save my people. I will send the Messiah and through him, I will create a new covenant. I will save my people by forgiving and forgetting their sins. I will save my people through the gift of my only son and his sacrifice on the cross. I am the God who saves, the only God who can save. The word for us here is clear. Our obsession with anything other than God, than Jesus, even something that seems good and healthy, makes us idolaters. Worshiping something that cannot save us from who we've been or what we've done. This week, as you live your life, focus on the God who saved you. Like the prophets of old, allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin, your idols, your misplaced hope and assurance. For there is only one place to find assurance of your salvation and your future in the kingdom of God. Only one place to find that blessed assurance in our God who saves. This is God's story for your life.